Before we open God's word, let us first pray that he would bless it to us. Lord, we thank you again for this time that we may learn from your word. We pray that by your spirit, you will illumine your word so that we may better understand what you have for us this evening. We thank you for the great blessing of your word, that we may know you and worship you as you have revealed yourself to us. Bless the reading of your word now so that we may more clearly understand the great salvation that you have accomplished for us in Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, please turn with me in God's word to the book of John, chapter 12. John, chapter 12. We want to read together verses 27 through 33, and that'll be our text for this evening as we continue to consider the Lord's prayer together and think about what we pray when we pray, hallowed be thy name. And so John, chapter 12, beginning our reading at verse 27, And reading through verse 33. And we'll think about that in connection with the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. So this is God's own word. Let us pay careful attention to it. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it. And I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. Uh, As I said, we're continuing our study of the Lord's Prayer this evening and continuing to think about it. Uh, We thought a little bit about the the structure of the prayer in general last time and appreciated how the Lord has given us a very simple pattern for teaching us how to pray. The prayer begins with an introductory address to our Father who is in heaven. Uh, It consists of six petitions or requests that we make of God, and it ends with a concluding confession, a confession that reminds us that our our Father has the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Um, And we pray that those things are truly and certainly will be when we say amen. Um, And so we want to think about this prayer. We thought about that introductory address last time, and we want to continue to think about it and think about that first petition, hallowed be thy name. Uh, One of the things I so appreciate about the catechism and coming back to these topics again and again is because there are things in the Christian life that we repeat a lot. Uh, The Lord's Prayer is one. We repeat that a lot. We do that in church. We probably do that in our own private prayers We say the Lord's Prayer, we say the Apostles' Creed, Um, and there was always a danger with repetition and with familiarity that we stop thinking about these things. We never pause to reflect on them and exactly what they mean. Um, It doesn't mean that we don't mean it when we say the Apostles' Creed or don't mean it when we pray the Lord's Prayer, Um, but if we don't pause from time to time and really give give careful thought to what we're praying or what we're saying, uh, we can miss the, the significance of the things that we say. And in the Lord's Prayer, I think um, we have a wonderful reminder, even at the beginning of the prayer, 
um, something profound is happening when we begin where we do by saying, hallowed be thy name. Um, Herman Vitzius, who was a, a Reformed scholar, um, wrote uh, two volumes on uh, the Lord's Prayer. And he, what, two on the Creed, one on the Lord's Prayer. I want to get my facts straight. Uh, one volume on the Lord's Prayer. And he goes through the petitions, and when it comes to hallowed be thy name, he, he presents it in such a beautiful way. He said, you know, we are creatures, we're sinful, we're full of many shortcomings, and what happens when we pray? We who are sinners and creatures and so far below God come before his majestic presence. There is the Father seated on his throne, and we have the privilege to enter in there. And it would be a privilege just to come into the presence of a great God and Father who sits on the throne. But he said, not only do we get the, pr- the privilege of approaching the throne, but we're conducted there by our mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who brings us into the presence of the Father. And the Holy Spirit is the one who also goes with us, giving the words to speak. Right? Do we really think about the fact that when we come into the, pre- the presence of Almighty God, if we didn't have help to actually form our prayers, we would be overwhelmed in that presence. If we didn't have a mediator who conducted us in, and we didn't have a helper who gave us the words to say, who assures us that he's already been in the presence of the Father and uttered groans too deep for words on our behalf. It's really a remarkable thing that we're allowed to do to come into the presence of God. Every time that happens, it's a great thing. Um, Every time it happens, it's a glorious thing to come before his presence. And so this scholar was really helping us to see how what an amazing thing it is just to come and pray. And he said, how much more significant, how much even greater is it when we come before the Lord and are privileged to ask for something that pertains not so much to us, but to him. There's something even greater than just coming into his presence to pray. It's coming to his presence and having the privilege of praying for him. Do we ever stop and meditate that that's really what that first petition is? It's a prayer for God. It's a prayer that his name would be hallowed in the world. Vitzius writes this, The most wonderful of all, and one which almost exceeds belief, is that a man should be allowed to plead not only for himself and for his neighbor, but for God. The honor of praying for God, which is thus granted to a human being, ought to be so highly prized by a believing soul that loving God above all things, even above itself, it should overlook for a time its own concerns until the matters which relate to the glory of God have been carefully settled. Uh, When we approach the throne of God, what are we asking for first and foremost? Not for ourselves or for our neighbors even, but for our God and for his glory. Uh, That his glory might be seen in the world. It's a great privilege to be able to pray that way. It's the first petition of the Lord's Prayer for a reason. Because it concerns our God and His name. It's not primarily about us. It's not primarily about our neighbor. It's primarily about Him. That His name might be hallowed. And we see that this should be the first in our hearts and minds because it was first in the heart and mind of our Savior. 
That's why we read John 12. It's a remarkable thing as Jesus turns to consider his own suffering and death. What he says in John chapter 12. Where, where does he begin in chapter 12, 27? Now is my soul troubled. Now is my soul troubled. Um, we have great needs as God's people. We have lots of things that we need for body and for soul. We've never been in as much need of help as our Lord was in need of help. We have never been troubled as much as he is troubled here. Right? We sometimes use that, that phrase, right? I've, I'm carrying the weight of the world on my shoulders. Uh, when, when we talk that way, we know we're speaking in hyperbole, right? We know we not, we're not really carrying the weight of the world on our shoulders. The trouble with which he's troubled here is really the weight of the world. Salvation depends on him personally for every soul that belongs to the Father. And he is going to his death, right? He said these things to, to proclaim, what, to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He knows what he's about to suffer. He knows that he's going to experience that, that agony of God's wrath visited on sin that is going to ring from him the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? That's trouble like we've never known. And we might ask if we were in that situation and we were the Lord crying out under the burden of this trouble, what would be our prayer? And he invites us into his mind, doesn't he, by letting us know what he's thinking in that moment. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? How shall I pray in this moment? What shall I say to my father? He says, one thing I might say is, Father, save me from this hour. Right? That's, that's one thing I might pray. That's why there's a, a question mark here. That's how God, that's how Jesus is speaking this. How might I pray? I might pray, Father, save me from this hour. But he says, for this purpose I have come to this hour. So what is my prayer? What is the prayer that he does offer? Father, glorify your name. It's foremost on the mind of our Lord, even despite what he's facing, to pray that above all the Father's name would be glorified. This helps us to see why this is the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. It's not just, you know, sort of six petitions that we throw against the dartboard and see which one comes out first or a deck of cards we shuffle to decide which one comes out on top. There's an intentionality to this, isn't there? This is the chief prayer of God's people that God would glorify his name. Father, glorify your name. This is Christ's urgent prayer even in this moment. And because it's first in his heart and desires, we shouldn't be surprised that he teaches us that it ought to be first in our hearts and in our desires, that the Father's name would be glorified. And so if we think about this petition, we're really asking for two things from the Lord. Um, two things from the Lord. Show your glory to us and show your glory through us. We want the glory of the Lord to be seen. 
And we're asking for the Lord to show his glory to us and to show his glory through us. And that's how we want to think about uh, this, this petition this evening. Lord, show your glory to us. Uh, that's what we say in the Heidelberg Catechism that the first petition means. Hallowed be your name means help us to truly know you, to honor, glorify, and praise you for all your works and for all that shines forth from them, your almighty power, wisdom, kindness, justice, mercy, and truth. Make your name known. Show the glory of your name. Um, God's name is very important in Scripture. If we don't really understand how God's name functions in Scripture, we're not really going to be able to understand this command, uh, this prayer as completely as we ought to. Uh, how does God, God's name function in Scripture? It functions a lot in the same way names function when we get to know people. Right? If you come up and you meet a stranger, you usually begin by asking their name. Uh, maybe you've had that frustrating experience of meeting someone and they don't give you their name. Uh, you give them your name and they don't give you their name. And then when someone else walks up, you're sort of awkward. You can't really introduce them because you don't know what their name is. Uh, you know, these are not major problems, but it happens, right, that, that these things take place. And it, it's hard because if someone says, who is that, and you don't know their name, you sort of have to say, I don't know. Um, the name tells us something about who the person is. Um, God's name tells us about who he is. That's, his, that's how his name functions in Scripture. It, it's a way of saying we know God's name because he reveals himself to us by that name. His name tells us something about who he is. He's the God who makes himself known. We could almost say he's the God who introduces himself to the world, who shows the world who he is. And how does God reveal himself? Well, we often say God reveals himself. He makes himself known in two ways. There's sort of a general way he makes himself known, and that's in his creation. That's the general way we know something about God. And then we also always talk about his special revelation. We know particular things about God because of how he's revealed himself to us in his word. So we talk about general revelation and special revelation, the world and the word as the two great ways that God makes his name known. But Scripture also tells us that God in these last days has made his name known in his Son. That what the world tells us about our God and what the Word tells us about our God is fully revealed, finally revealed, in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the way we understand who God is. He reveals to us the most clearly who God is. But that's why passages like the one we looked at this morning that shows the tenderness of Jesus should be so precious to us because that same Lord who took children in his arms and laid his hand on them and blessed them is who God is. That's who God is. He's a God who takes the time to care and to bless. The God who loves those who come seeking his blessing and will not refuse it to those who seek him. You see, in Jesus, we see something more of who God is personally revealed to us in time and history in the person of our Lord. And Jesus says, that's the purpose for which I came into the world. 
Right? When, he, when he prays this high priestly prayer later in John 17, and he's praying to the Father, and we get the privilege of hearing that prayer, what does he say in John 17, 6? I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. I have taught them who you are. I have manifested your name. He did that by the good that he did in the world, how he set people free from disease and from demon possession and from injury and disability and death. He showed who God was in those things. He, sho- he showed who God was in what he said, in the gospel that he preached, in the hopes that he held out to people. You know, By saying, if you are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. I came that you would have life and have it abundantly. I came to seek and to save the lost. All of those things that Jesus said in the world about who he is manifested the the name of his father. Told the world who God is. And that's what he could say at the end of his earthly ministry. I have manifested your name. I've made your name known. That's why the writer of Hebrews is so insistent in the beginning of his epistle, to say, you need to pay attention to Jesus because if you're expecting a better revelation, a better revelation of who God is down the road, there's not going to be one. This is the best revelation of who God is. This is the revelation of who God is that we've always been waiting for. Right? Those well-known words that begin the epistle of Hebrews Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Um, He reveals to us who God is. And we say he's the highest and best revelation because in him we really see the grace and the glory of God. When we see who God is, not only by what the Word says, but what Jesus shows to us, we can really only reach one conclusion about our God. And that is that He is holy in all of His works and all of His words. Uh, It's a beautiful way the Catechism summarizes that for us. God is holy in all His works and all His words. When we look at his creation and providence, we see the revelation of his almighty power. We see something of who God is that he could call all of this into being out of nothing by the power of his word and that he still upholds it all, that he's governing it all. He made everything for his glory. He's moving everything for his glory and for the good of his people. It tells us something of the power of the God that we serve. And when we understand the law and the gospel that's revealed in the word of God and comes in our Lord Jesus Christ, we understand something of God's justice and his mercy and his truth. That while he is a just judge who will certainly punish all transgression, he is also a merciful God 
who sent his son into the world that he might be just and the justifier of those who are saved by the sacrifice of his son. Jesus comes and pays the penalty that we were owed, the justice that should have come to us. He stands in our place to deliver us from it. It tells us that God is both just and merciful, that he desires to save sinners. And the truth is perfectly revealed in the Lord Jesus Christ about God's will for justice and for salvation. Justice, mercy, and truth shines forth to us from God, about God in his word, and how do we react to those things? When we see that he's holy in all of his work and in all of his word, um, it causes us to react in a particular way as his people. We honor him. We glorify him. We praise him. Um, It's important that we have that explanation for us in the catechism because we continue to use that old word, hallowed, um, but maybe we don't really know what the word exactly means. Um, Maybe people use that word, hallowed, but it's hard for them to know exactly what that means. It sort of sounds almost like Halloween or something like that. So why do we use that word? What does that word mean? And really, it does mean to honor or to hold in reverence as holy. Um, The Apostle Peter uses the same word in 1 Peter 3.15 when he says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Hallow Christ the Lord as holy. That means to honor, to hold in reverence because his name is holy. And so when we understand the holiness of God, when we see what he does and his power and his kindness and all of those things that shine forth in what he does, it will cause us to honor him as the God who is all of these things. Um, It will also cause us to glorify him. An older translation of the catechism said magnify him. Um, And I think maybe that helps us to see what what we do when we're glorifying God or how maybe glorifying him is a little different than praising him. Um, Glorifying God, if we think about it as magnifying God, uh, what does a magnifying glass do? If you take a magnifying glass, don't burn ants with them. Especially little boys need to be reminded of that, right? Don't use the magnifying glass for that purpose. But what is a magnifying glass for? It's for making things bigger, right? When you use a magnifying glass, it makes things bigger. It doesn't change the actual thing. What does it do? It just makes it bigger and clearer. And that's what we do when we understand who God is. We honor him because of who he is, and we want people to see more clearly and more greatly who he is. We want who he is to become clearer in the world, to become bigger in the world. We want his name to be known. Another way of saying that might be to say we want to broadcast who this God is. We not only want to honor him for his sake, but we want the world to see who he is in all of his glory that shines forth. Um, It should be seen more broadly because it shows who he is. And then we also praise him. We're filled with a desire to praise the God who is like this. The God who has made his name known to us for his works and his words that display all of his glory. And again, the greatest display of God's glory, the greatness of his work and word, is seen in our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Right? When Jesus prays in our text, Father, glorify your name, a voice comes from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. That's the testimony of heaven in answer to the prayer of Christ. And what is the Father speaking about when he says that? He's speaking about his Son. I have glorified my name in him. I will glorify my name again in him. I have glorified my name in what he has represented about me to this point, And I will glorify it again when he dies the kind of death he's come to die. When he is lifted up on the cross, there he will glorify the Father in showing his willingness to give his life and to lay it down as a ransom for those his Father loves. The people he's given him to save, he will save by his death on the cross and by his blessed resurrection. That's why the greatest display of the glory of God is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul celebrates this in Colossians 1, 13 to 20. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. There is no greater glory than the Lord Jesus Christ, showing forth the name of our God. Christ is preeminent in creation, he's preeminent in redemption, he's preeminent in resurrection and in restoration. In all things, Christ is preeminent. The glory of God's work and word shines forth in him because he is the living word and he is the great and active worker of all that the living God has done in creation and redemption and glory. And in him is the name revealed that is above every name. The name at which everyone will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that he is Lord What? To the glory of the Father. Glorify your name. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. He's done it in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's worked through his son so that his greatest glory is revealed in what he's done for us. One of my former professors said, by the gospel, man's greatest good coincides with God's greatest glory. By the gospel, God's great, man's greatest good coincides with God's greatest glory. The greatest glory that God shows forth is in his saving purposes for his people. And so God has worked it so perfectly that our greatest good in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ also shows forth the great glory of our God. The greatness of his glory is seen there. And we are praying in the Lord's Prayer that that glory might be seen. 
that that glory would be shown to us and to the world. And that God would show that glory to us, but that he would also show his glory through us. That's the second part of what we pray when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Show your glory to us and show your glory through us. But as God's people, we want his name to be hallowed in us as well. Not just in the world, but in us. That's why we say in the question and answer tonight that it also means, when we pray, hallowed be thy name, help us to direct all our living, what we think, say, and do, so that your name will never be blasphemed because of us, but always honored and praised. Right? To pray, we want your name to be hallowed. We want your name to be hallowed in the world. That reveals the desire of our hearts, right? That statement is our declaration of desire that God's name would be hallowed. But our commitment to that desire is demonstrated by what we do. What we do in the world to try to glorify our God, right? Our, our words have to be proven by our action, Right, the Apostle James is helpful in this regard, reminding God's people that talk alone is cheap. Right? You can, it's one thing to say something. It's another thing to demonstrate by your life that you mean what you say. Uh, the Apostle James helps, or James helps us by saying that, right? Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Well, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Don't just tell me you believe, show me you believe, right, is essentially what what James is saying there, and we're being reminded. We don't want to just pray that God's glory would be seen. We want to advance the glory of God in our lives. We want to show by how we live that we want God to be glorified, right? That, That was Jesus' call in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and what? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. It's a wonderful thing when God is glorified by our lives. Um, I have unbelieving relatives that I don't think really understand why I'm a pastor. Um, And the one thing they do understand about the church is when I'm able to tell them about how the church shows love to one another. Sometimes the spiritual aspects of Christ and what he's done for our souls goes right over their heads. But they understand when the congregation rallies around someone in love. Uh, When we help people spiritually, when we help people materially, even that is something they say, okay, you know, I don't get maybe the other spiritual stuff, but that sounds really good that you do that for people. That, you know, shut-ins are visited and that the deacons are taking... uh, and doing things for people, helping them materially, uh, giving their time and effort, despite of all the other things they do to help people, the visitation that goes on, the prayers that go on. They understand that love. They understand that concern. They understand that pouring out. And they, they recognize it as something that's good. And by that, God's name is glorified. And it's a wonderful thing when God's name is glorified on account of the things we do. And we know that it's a terrible thing when he's dishonored on account of us. When he's dishonored on account of what we do. Paul says in Romans 2, 23 to 24, You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. 
For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. What a terrible condemnation that would be. Right? To hear someone say, you know, God's name is blasphemed on account of what you're doing. That should be something that would horrify all of us to think about. Um, That God's name might be blasphemed on account of what we do. And we can kind of draw an analogy between how God makes his name known and how we make God's name known. Um, How does God make his name known? We've said through his work and through his word. How do we make God's name known? By our works and by our words. Right? That's in a lot of ways how people know something about God from us. I remember once driving down the street and a car passed me and the bumper sticker on the car was, Jesus might love you, but everyone else thinks you're a jerk. I cleaned it up. That's not what the bumper sticker said. Everyone else thinks you're something else. And I thought, you know, I don't know what in that person's life caused them to think, I often wonder, what, why is that the one message you want to send the world on the back of your car? Um, I don't know what that person had experienced, but that's a terrible thing if one of God's children did something to that person that made them feel that way. Um, that made them feel that way. We make God known by our words and our works. People know we're Christians and we make God known by how we, how we live. And we're acknowledging here it's not really enough to pray hallowed be thy name if we go out then and live like the rest of the unbelieving world does. Right? If, if our thinking is no different than the way unbelievers think. Right? And our conversations and interactions with people, our speech, whether it's in real life or on social media or anywhere else, if our speech looks just like the speech of unbelievers, um, if our work in the world looks no different than the things unbelievers are doing, then we're really failing to hallow God with our lives. And that's what we're praying to do here, right? That his glory would be shown through what we do. We, want, we don't want to run the risk of becoming people like the Pharisees who were really great about talking about what God did and really great about keeping their idea of what God wanted to do, but of whom Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We rather want as God's people for our whole lives to be a testimony to his glory. That we would direct all our living, what we think, say, and do, to make sure that God's name is always honored on account of us and not blasphemed. A reminder of this, that we have the privilege with our life of glorifying our God, will be a powerful motivation to pursue sanctification. Right? We often talk about how gratitude is a wonderful motivator. Right? Gratitude for what God has done, that he loved us so much that he was willing to send his son to die for us, and our, that his son loved us so much that he was willing to lay down his life, body and soul for us, on the cross, to leave that glory to go through that hell on our behalf, and that the Spirit loved us enough to tabernacle with us and to be our helper always, and to bring into remembrance the things that Jesus said to us, that God loves us enough to do all of these things, is a wonderful testimony that should cause us to be grateful to God and motivate us to serve Him. 
But even when we talk about gratitude being a powerful motivation to holiness, we also know that it's not exclusive in its motivation. That God's glory is also a powerful motivation to holiness. Right? Just as when our lives dishonor God, um, we bring dishonor on his name, so when we do the things that God has called us to do, we are privileged to bring honor to his name. When our lives are devoted to him, we never want his glory to be questioned or worse, blasphemed on account of us. And when we do what we do with that mindset of glorifying God, it's a powerful motivation to holiness. It becomes not just about us. Right? Sometimes our, our, our drive to be holy turns into, I hate that I see this in myself and I want to see something better in myself. And it can become almost a kind of attempt at self-improvement. But when we keep the glory of God in mind, we notice, we recognize, I'm not just doing this for myself. I'm actually doing this for my God to glorify his name in what I do. I think I've shared this with you before, but I'm always struck at reading old prayers of the Puritans, how often you hear some version of the phrase, give me an eye single for thy glory. Help me to only be looking for your glory in the world. Help me to have that be my motivation for what I do. And that's what this prayer really is. Help me to hallow your name in what I do so that I would direct all my thinking and all my words and all my actions that your name would be glorified in what I do. You see how glory then provides a powerful motivation for the Christian life. And we recognize when I do the things that are pleasing to God, it glorifies his name. It brings honor and glory on his name in the world. It also reminds us that we cannot do these things in our own strength. Right? We have to remind ourselves not get too far afield that this is a prayer, right? There's a calling that we can see in that prayer to try to hallow the name of God, but we never forget that this is a prayer. Help to show your glory through us because if you don't help us, we won't be able to do it, right? You would all go out depressed if I said, now you, what you need to do this week is gin up the strength in yourself to direct all your living everything you think and everything you say and everything you do so that you would glorify God. You would go out saying, well, thank you very much for weighing me down with that millstone around my neck. How in the world am I supposed to do that? That's the reason this is a prayer. We recognize that we do not have the power in ourselves to show God's glory in our own strength. If we're going to do that, we need help. We need help if we're going to try to direct all of our living to that end. And if we try to do it in our own strength, we would fail. But what does praying these things help to remind us? Go back to that scene that, that Vitzius helped us to begin with at the beginning of the sermon. What is prayer? It's entering into the throne room of God. And being reminded that there is a Father in heaven who sits on his throne who is almighty. We don't have any power to do these things in ourselves. 
if we tried to direct all of our living, our thinking, our words, our actions to God on our own strength, we would fail miserably. What does praying help us do? It helps us to draw into the presence of God and say, if there's power to do this, it's here. This is where the power is. The one who sits on the throne has power. And I have access to him by his son. He's the one who's bringing me to the throne. Bringing me to the father as our mediator. And we have a spirit who's giving us the words to lift up to our father and pray to him. That's where the power is. That's why prayer has to be central in the life of God's people. Again, I've, I've said it to you before, but I love what John Bunyan said. He said, after you've prayed, there are any number of good things you might do. Once you've prayed, start trying to direct your living to glorify God. But if you do that before you've prayed, you haven't done the best thing you could do. Right? After you pray, there's any number of things to do. But until you've prayed, you've not done the best thing that you need to do. Because what does prayer do? It conducts us into the presence of God and says, okay, here's where the power is. I don't have the strength to try to glorify God in my life. But here is the God who has power to glorify himself in me. Right? Even Jesus prayed, Father, glorify your name. Even Jesus prayed, that, God would glorify, that the Father would glorify himself in the Son. If he needed to pray that, how much more do we need to pray that? That's where the power is. And we're reminded that those who are enlivened and enlightened by the Spirit of grace have the power to make a beginning, to glorify God in our lives. That's where the power is. That's what Paul reminds us of in Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul knew he needed to pray that for his people. Uh, we need to pray that for ourselves. That's what we're praying, hallowed be thy name, so that ultimately through us, God would show his glory. And we pray that, that's what we're praying. Show your glory to us and to the world and show your glory through us in the world. All to the end that your name would be magnified, honored, and praised. May God grant our prayer. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do desire that your name would be magnified in the world, that people would see you as the great God who has created the world and saved the world and is sanctifying us and will remake the world at the coming of your Son. We desire that people would understand your glory, and so our prayer, Lord, is that your name would be hallowed in all the earth. We thank you for the privilege of praying that prayer and we pray that you would also work in our lives by your spirit that we might glorify your name by what we think and what we say and what we do. Lord, we pray that you would keep us from ever causing your name to be blasphemed because of us. 
And where we have caused that to happen, Lord, we ask that you would forgive us our sins. For we know there is no sin worse than blaspheming your name. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to build us up in the most holy faith and fill us with your spirit that we might more and more hallow your name in the world. For our great desire, Father, is that you would glorify your name. And we thank you that you have glorified it in your son. You glorified him in his incarnate. You glorified yourself in his incarnation. You glorified him in his death. And you were glorified through him in his resurrection. And you will be glorified again when he comes to judge the living and the dead. How we long for his appearing. May he find us faithful as those who seek to hallow your name always in all our living. Hear our prayers and help us in this, we pray, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.